there's always something, right? There's a lot of uh, unexpected because even when you understand their workflow, there's always something that is beyond your control that you didn't think about or you thought about it, but then it turned out differently. I always, I, I know it's easier to, to, to say rather than you have to do the do, right? And I think when the rubber meets the road, all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, you know, we had this plan and then it turned out that that was not what I learned from the other interview that I had. I've interviewed 20 different people and then this is the workflow and then put it somewhere like, well, we don't really care that much. And I think that is something that it requires a lot of talking and to people, but more so to listening and hearing what you don't want to hear. I think as a human, we like to hear what we want to hear. And uh, it's always good to check with others <laughs> within the team, whether is this what I hear correctly or not. Welcome to the Message Engineer Podcast for MedTech Startups. We are so excited today to have Christine Winotto as our guest. Christine is the founder and executive director of the UCSF, Rosamond Institute, and founding partner of MedTech Venture Partners. Christine has decades of experience in healthcare across a range of sectors. And prior to joining UCSF, Christine worked at Kaiser Permanente in its capital and strategic planning capacity. Uh, she also worked at Genencore in a global role, as well as at medical device startups such as Physiometrics and Hardcore, where we first met. Christine was named one of the most influential women in the San Francisco Bay Area in 2020, uh, and she holds an MBA from Erasmus University in the Netherlands and a BS from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So welcome, Christine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I always like to start with just uh, kind of what I call define the word warm up. And so it's, you know, just responding what what you think about this, what comes to mind for you uh, as you think about medtech startups. An obvious first one, uh, message or messaging. Messaging, what I think about medtech messaging. I always that people make it more fun. We do tend to take ourselves too seriously, don't we, sometimes? It feels that way, but I think it's good for a good reason too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, humor also makes the message, whatever it may be, more memorable, like cognitively proven, <laughs> published studies, more memorable. I learned that, I think, uh, I, I, my background is based in science in we tend to think that in order to influence people, we need to show data. Well, I learned later in life that how wrong I was. And actually, it's about the story, not so much about the data. And that is heartbroken, heartbreaking for me when I first learned about it. <laughs> yeah, people want to feel something, right? Have some kind of emotion, laughter, cry, humor, you know. Yeah, but I think also, I fire. I think I've been in a room where some people tend to be more 
cynical about people's story. Mm. But majority of people usually like a good story. I'll ask you. So from that, I'll ask you the next. So how, how do you define or think about kind of origin story? And what are some of the, when you see all these startups coming through the Rosamond Institute or on the venture capital side, what do you see that they're doing really well? Uh, what do you see that they're, they could do better or they're kind of missing the mark on oftentimes? I think it's very, I mean, where we are, we see so many ranges. Uh, we see individual who just have an idea and they want to explore the idea and think about how it can make it into reality and all the way to company who has gone through the iteration that they have uh, successfully raised some friends and family funding and some even, you know, more uh, seasoned angel investors. And then some later on uh, when uh, we've known them for a few years where they successfully raised Series A and Series B funding. And so in a way, what each of different stage has different struggle and challenges. And I think when you're in a seed funding, your challenges is different from when you're in a Series A funding versus somebody who just have an idea. And I think sometimes what I learn in life, you always think wherever we are, it seems more difficult than where it was. And we then forgot so quickly how hard it was when we were you know, in the previous stage and thinking that the current stage we have is tougher. And so to answer your question, what are the common pitfalls? I don't know. I don't I think everybody is so personal in a way. Mm-hmm. Depending on what their experience, depending on what they have known or they they know about startup worlds versus somebody who don't know startup worlds. So it varies, I think. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Yeah, it's very, it's very varied. (laughs) I know, I think sometimes it's hard for uh, when, as you know, when you scale, it's so easy when to scale and you don't have to customize. And I think a lot of the time, what we try to do where we are, we try to meet people where they are. And I think as a result of that, we oftentimes, our resources is also thin. Our team is really small. Mm-hmm. And we want to provide a lot of um, relevant uh, advice. So what we do is we rely on a lot of our uh, network of volunteer and expert in the industry and try to match them and then meet them where they are. I think sometimes people on the outside world did not realize uh, how much uh, thinking behind the scene that we do for each individual as we see the entrepreneur more on the individual level, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, uh, that, does, that does make sense. And I think that's great that you are customizing what they need, right? You're recognizing what they need and then trying to plug them into the right solution for that with, with volunteers. I mean, but again, doesn't mean what you think that's what they need is what they think they need. Right. That's another thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you align the expectation 
And again, I think that's something that maybe I can also learn on how to message it. Yeah, that you bring up a really important point about about startups, right? We both sit in observer positions a lot, right? Me as a consultant with my company and, and you at the Roseman Institute. And we see a lot of startups, right? And it's easier for us to see because we're not, I think, because we're just, we're, in, we're standing outside of it. So I think someone looking at, at my business standing outside of it would see things I wouldn't see. It's this kind of perspective. Yes, but I think at the same time, sometimes it's easy for us to judge mm. because sometimes you give advice and because you probably hear from somebody, oh, you know, so-and-so said, you know, this company did this and then they, they make the mistake. But everybody is, like I said, everybody's special. Everybody's more special than others. And I think also that sometimes when, you know, people... For example, like people can give me advice. We like to listen because I think we can learn so much from others. And I think sometimes people don't realize we also tried that particular advice. Maybe it did not work. And so so there's a thing sometimes at the end of the day as a CEO, you have to decide which advice that you have to follow through because there's so many advice out there. And what is good, what is bad? You know, people say, oh, don't take it from bad advice. And you as a CEO need to have that knowledge to decipher which one is something that fits with your personality, with your current state of and your technology, your product and the current environment that maybe was different when it doesn't mean that was a bad advice, but that was the advice that maybe is no longer relevant or mm-hmm. is still relevant. That's something that's what makes an organization unique because each person brings their unique perspective. Yes, that's definitely true, right? Different people are going to create different companies to do different things. And, you know, culturally, some things will work for people and other things won't work for other people. Yeah, ultimately, the CEO has to decide that. There's no doubt about that. So from the standpoint, then, of offering advice to startups, and they're getting started, right, in medtech specifically, uh, there's a lot that has been changing, and I'm, I know from my perspective, um, I see a lot of, I mean, a ton of software, whole like software data piece coming into even proper kind of med dev- medical device companies, coming a critical part of kind of the future growth. Um, and then we have this whole new set of folks, new-ish, right? <laughs> Um, kind of in the digital health and health tech and uh, coming from kind of more of a direct-to-patient perspective, remote patient monitoring and things like that. I mean, as you look to people who are coming up in this industry, what are some of the things that you think are going to be really critical areas of knowledge for those folks as they are building startups that, say, 10 years ago really wasn't that important? I think the basics always the same, isn't it? I felt that you need to know uh, the whole process in terms of the flow of where mm. the money will come from. I think healthcare in this country is so unique compared to other healthcare in the rest of the world, which is still crazy when you think about it. And I think I love to think that 
you know, the doctor always blame the payer, the payers always blame the patients, you know, there's always shifting the blame. And I was telling a lot of the entrepreneurs is that, I mean, it has to work in order to, you know, it has to make a difference on the outcome for the patient or the consumer. But at the same time, the consumer in this country don't make any decision about healthcare. And that is a sad reality. And, but that's the reality. And, you know, one time I always laugh about that even a patient willing to pay for Botox and plastic surgery, but to treat their cancer, they don't think they should pay for it. But that's the U.S. market. And so what are the things that they need to learn more? And I think there's a lot more cross-functional in terms of technical knowledge. Maybe in the old days, if you are doing something that is mechanical, then maybe you just need to work with certain group of uh, expertise. But I think nowadays, uh, a lot of the new innovation requires more cross-functional. Uh, somebody who maybe understand the neuroscience, somebody needs to understand the engineering side, somebody mm-hmm. needs to do the computer science. And I think that probably was less though when I think about when I just started my career in medical devices well, I think. Mm-hmm. And so now it's more how do you bring knowing how to bring different verticals, different knowledge into one room and understanding everybody's perspective. I mm-hmm. think that is something that maybe you need to, to have maybe before that you didn't need to have. Maybe before you just think about an engineering, around the R&D guy and a marketing guy and a sales team and regulatory, you're good. But I feel mm-hmm. even now, just on the product side, you need to have more... Uh, more technical background, I guess. Yeah, I think with uh, that definitely makes sense. I went to the MedTech conference. It's the AbMed's annual meeting um, a couple of months ago. And I think one of the things that was really fascinating was that all the major, you know, the large medical device companies were talking about software and data in big, meaningful ways. Also talking about workflow there's this long-held idea of like what you talked about, right? Driving clinical outcomes, driving clinical outcomes and making sure, as you said earlier, that the economics work. So <laughs> a critical thing uh, and that sometimes I found folks new to med device don't, don't really understand that and how complicated that is and how to set it up to kind of win right? It's got to win for the patients, got to win for the providers. It needs to win economically for whichever, whatever facility, wherever that may be, <laughs> that is, this thing is being done, whether it's the home or an ASC or a hospital, right? Or something else entirely. The one new piece of that, in addition to clinical outcomes and kind of the economics, was this third piece of workflow the companies were talking about and saying how critical this was. And they didn't, they didn't say, you know, saving time, um, but part of it does boil down to making it easier, which means saving time, making it simpler, et cetera, because of all the labor considerations, burnout, and just slots not being filled on the physician side and nurses side. And I'm wondering, um, do you see that 
startups are thinking about that or building for that or understand when they're developing their medical advice that we're headed into a new future? I think, uh, you know, I feel that sometimes, you know, I always joke that I think majority of startups know that they need to think about all those things that you mentioned, right? They're getting the economic right, the workflows right. It's, again, it's easier to tell, like, oh, you need to figure out the workflow, but there's so many nuances and details. And I think uh, sometimes what makes entrepreneurs entrepreneurs is that sometimes they jump before they know everything, right? If you know, wait until you know everything, you don't go. Um so I think they do think about it. And I think what I also found also people, it, it, it's, it's hard to get that information as, as well, right? So it's all about gathering information, listening to the constituents that you're supporting, asking the right question. And that can be challenging. And sometimes like, so if you think about the workflow, with the workflow, there's, you know, depending on where your product is used, different settings, different workflow, and to understand like which market that you're going to understand it first. And then if you follow that particular segment, is that something that's translatable to others? And I found sometimes uh, it's almost like I, I always joke, at least, you know, in my internal meeting, it's like life is all about, you know, solving problem mm-hmm. until the day you die. And I think the same thing with startup, if you have, if you're able to solve the problem before you run out of money, (laughs) then it gives you the chance. And I think that's a lot because, you know, one thing that you, it's one thing, you know, there's always something, right? There's a lot of uh, unexpected because even when you understand their workflow, there's always something that is beyond your control that you didn't think about or you thought about it but then it turned out differently and so I think I I always I know it's easier to 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 say rather than you have to do the do right and I think when the rubber meets the road all of a sudden it's like oh my god you know we had this plan and then it turned out that that was not what I learned from the other interview that I had I've interviewed 20 different people and then this is the workflow and then put it somewhere like well we don't really care that much and I think that is something that it requires a lot of talking and li- to people but and more so to listening and hearing what you don't want to hear I think as a human we like to hear what we want to hear and uh, it's always good to check with others <laughs> Within the team, whether is this what I hear correctly or not, I think. And I was talking about the whole workflow too. It's very complicated because going in, you know, oftentimes when I come up with the solution that this is going to make a huge change, but people uh, underestimate the willingness of people to to learn when you're so busy. Mm-hmm. And I think what I learn in life, everybody can learn is more about whether they're willing or not. So any technology that you want to implement that make a huge better outcome for the patient if different parts are not willing to do the time to put the effort 
it's not going anywhere. It's all about how can you convince people to be willing to support you on different side of different aspect of the sales cycle or be an investors. And I think that's what it is. And sometimes you look at some technology, is it really better than the other? Or is it because they were surrounded by direct people who are willing to implement that? And so that's why I think going back to your messaging is about how do you bring those people together? And sometimes it's based on how you convince people. Some people really know how to twist your arm and then like, oh my God, you know, this is what I want to do for X, Y, Z. And sometimes, you know, somebody somebody who can be a really great idea and is like, you know what, I'm not interested. So at the end, I mean, I always say the world will be so much easier if we are all robot because everything will be so <laughs> But we are not. We are a very complicated human being. We make uh, irrational decisions and based on a lot of irrational things. That. Yeah, you you make a really great point, right? Because we're all the, I always say we're the sum of our experiences. And the more we learn, right, we're not only just the sum of our own experiences, but epigenetically, perhaps that of our ancestors, right, our predecessors. We may think we're being objective, but yeah, if we look it through our lens, right? And our lens is limited. Um, There's no substitute when it involves with, uh, if there's no standardized, multiple tests and everything else is subjective. There you go. Yeah, no no need to like drum up an SAT for med device company. <laughs> I'll pass on that. Uh, I think one of the things, you know, one of the things you're talking a bit about was this, you know, listening, right? And, and learning, you know, listening to different viewpoints and then figuring out kind of how to sort that. I know, for example, for me, it was always really helpful when I was in product management, um, I would try to do any kind of physician meetings or focus groups with at at that point in time with an R&D colleague because we would literally sit in the same meeting and walk away with different takeaways, <laughs> different impressions, uh, which was good, which was good, right? So um, I'm wondering if you've seen kind of best practices for uh, listening that startups can do or things that's you don't have to name any any people or groups but something yes. some of the ones that are doing better are doing and uh, some of the things you may or may not want to avoid if any. I that's you know I mean oftentimes you know because I'm not one of the customers so it's not something that they ask me for work or anything like that but I mean I can draw from my own experience a thing again like um I think having a good habit of recapping the meeting, mm. it always, I think the moment you put it in paper, it's, uh, it become clearer somehow mm-hmm. in terms of what your understanding and what that person said. And the other person can be like, yep, that's what I said. And then, or, well, no, that's not what I said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think sometimes that person, I mean, I think when, Somebody say, oh, Christian, you asked him. That's all I remember. Like, you know, Christian, you asked him. But then, but after he said, Christian, you asked him, there's something else that maybe I didn't catch it because I was so far fixed it with the awesomeness part. And I think, uh, but I think, uh, to, uh, 
I don't know. I was raised completely different. I, you know, I was raised not focusing on the compliment. I tend to f- uh, focus on the hard stuff, like um, the part that is not working. So oftentimes, when I said, you know, I focus on the awesomeness, actually, I usually don't hear it when somebody said I am doing a good job because I tend to minimize that. And but that is a different culture um, thing. I learned that in this country. Um, which is great, you know, the positive energy is so important. Uh, but that's a, a, something that I also am learning that, uh, people like to hear positive things. Like for me, I like to hear the negative things because that's something I can do to change it. It's interesting. I love, pos- I love feedback, right? And it feels good for a minute, the positive feedback. You know, I've always valued more highly the folks who could walk in. <laughs> like when I was inside corporate, literally like walk down the hall, open my door, close it, come in and close the door behind them and say, we have a problem. <laughs> like this, that, the other thing. And I, I valued, I think like you do, I valued those people because they told it to me straight. And when someone told me what was happening, I could do, like you said, I could do something about it. I could take action. I could fix it. We could problem solve together. I mean, do you think that that's a a critical skill in startups that people are able to have these kind of forthright conversations with each other? I think, you know, it's it's easy for to judge again. Everybody's different. You know, I think everybody comes from different experience and background especially if you work on something that it's you think about it day in the night and then you come to me asking for a feedback and I give you a feedback when I literally just thought about it you know five minutes before you asked me mm-hmm. that question and so maybe my my feedback might not be completely valid but this is why I always tell my son I mean I you know I have a 16 years old, but I remember when he was maybe 11 or so, you know, teenagers start feeling don't like to get criticism or critical feedback. Mm-hmm. And I learned there's a different, um, you need to, we need to learn how to take feedback. Mm-hmm. And I, this is one exercise that I did, and some people might think I'm crazy as a mom, uh, but I, you know, I was very frustrated because I felt like I was doing very nice thing. And of course, maybe when I speak to him, it's so different when I speak to you. So maybe my feedback with less filtered, so it can be less, can be, uh, seems a bit hard, hard on him. But I think at the end, I realized that this is not helpful, but I, so I, we had this exercise and he and I, we both uh, practice it and I learn it from, I don't remember now, which, uh, which article, which book that I read is that you ask for permission if you want to give somebody feedback. I mean, you know, mm. if you're a star, so you ask for feedback. But then what I did to my son is like, can I give you a feedback? Because as a parent, you need to give feedback all the time. Mm-hmm. And then his answers always for like a whole year, we practice is that, uh, yes, please. Thank you. Tell me more. And I think I've seen a lot of people when they ask for feedback, they tend to defend their position and not, um, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not saying that they're not, they're wrong. Could be they're right. Mm-hmm. And so I always tell people when I provide feedback, this is based on what my impression 
for a short interact, short, you know, interaction that I have with that person. And this is the impression I had. So I could be wrong, but this is what my impression is. I think oftentimes when, uh, when you tell somebody like, Oh, you know, but I did this, I did this. And then you never got the whole feedback from that person. And so I always tell my son, when somebody gives you feedback, they took the risk. They don't have to give you feedback. It's that, you know, as, as long as that person not going to say something really mean attacking your personality. And, you know, I think you as the recipient decide which feedback you want to take. But if you, I mean, this is definitely I learned from Dan Rosenman is that, hey, you know, those are information and you decide whether you want to take it or not. But if you tell somebody like, oh, you know, this is not, how you do it, you know, this is what, you know, what you said is wrong, da, da, da. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, why do I need to come up with more feedback? Because then the whole hour is just listening. Instead of me giving feedback, the whole hour will be me listening to the other person defending mm -hmm. what their position is. So then it becomes the purpose of the meeting become different. And so my team and, you know, I've been always telling my team, like, you know, this is a safe place you guys can give me feedback. I mean, listening to negative feedback, no matter how it hurt, how amazing you are, it always sucks. <laughs> it's like, you know, this is not something that I want to hear. But at the same time, you have to suck it up. Mm -hmm. It's something that you have to, like, you know, listen and make the other person feel that not is that it, it is a valuable feedback. And then you decide what you want to do with it. Nobody can tell you what to do with that feedback. Mm -hmm. But if you set it down, you never hear the whole story. Yeah, I, uh, that's really brilliant. I think that um, accepting feedback, you know, that idea of constantly learning that you talked about, being open and receptive to feedback, hear, like really hearing it. It's critical to your growth, right? And getting better, doing better learning. And even if it's something you walk away from and you say, mm, I'm not going to take all of that. There's, there's always something in there to learn. Yeah. Cause you never know. I mean, if you give me the feedback and I said, Maureen, that was horrible, whatever that you just said to me. Uh, and then the next time, maybe that moment it was horrible. And, but the next moment, what your feedback might be amazing, but you would never tell me. <laughs> Because I already told, I already told you it was horrible. <laughs> yeah, that I yeah that being asking for and being op open and receptive to feedback, not defending yourself. You know, having enough kind of grounding of who you are and where you are to to really listen, really hear. I I think sometimes people listen, I, and I I'm I'm speaking from my own experience as well. You know, uh, there are times where I used to listen but not really hear it. Mm -hmm. and uh or i'd be like yeah i don't believe that that's not right but i think I think one yeah. of the critical things that you're talking about is this idea of when you when you um let's say qualify things by saying well, my impression is right because there really there really is no even in science right there's no right or wrong it changes it used to be right. If it was right 50 years ago, maybe it's not right <laughs> now, right? Is Pluto a planet? Is Pluto not a planet? No. So I think 
if uh what is it is it not is it a planet again i think it's a planet again no? i don't remember <laughs> it does not affect my daily life or my future at the moment so um, pluto can just be its very own self whatever it wants yeah. to be uh but I, I think if science can shift and change, right? We know, right? The world is flat. The world's not flat, right? It's changed a lot, and even in you know year to year, like, oh, well, we most, the bull has been proven not flat, though. <laughs> this is true. I don't think that's, <laughs> yeah, that's not a, that's not quite. There's no question marks there anymore. Um, but hey, the species is extinct. Oh, hey, we went to this faraway island and went into the forest and not extinct, right? So um, they're discovering new species like every week. And so I think to think that any one of us, I, that's why I love what you said about, well, it's my, it's my impression that because the older I get, the more I realize that there is no right or wrong, right? There's, all, there's a lot of gray and a lot of different people perceiving things in different ways. And there's so much to learn from other people. Um, if we're, like you said, if we're open to feedback, we're not like, okay, I'm ready for the feedback. <laughs> I have built the giant wall around me. I feel safe now. I'll yeah, sit here no, that's... and let, it, let the words blow by me. So not the way to take feedback. Um, yeah. And yeah, do you, I think, I would think, and I haven't thought about this before, so I'm curious what you think about if it's, more almost more important to take feedback in startups than it would be at a larger company just because it's changing so rapidly i think it's something that as a human you constantly have to look for feedback be it your i mean of course baby you cannot take feedback you're gonna ask for feedback but even somebody who is very whatever successful if you think of somebody's success is xyz and that person have there's always something there's you know that you can always improve and so it doesn't matter whether you're a startup or you're you know we all have our own blind spot and that's how mm -hmm. we survive sometimes but it's also make us not perfect and nobody's perfect until the day you die right and that's what i say that nobody is perfect the, the, the time that you're perfect is when you're dead <laughs> Perfectly dead. Yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah. No more feedback happening then. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the reality of life. Mm -hmm. But doesn't mean that's a bad thing either. Because you can, you know, learning is uh, you're discovering about yourself and you're discovering about what's surrounding you. And I think that might make it make life so interesting and fun. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, without a doubt. When yeah, I've heard people say things like, "When you stop learning, you die." Right, learning new things, trying new things, you know, is all just lay down and call it a day. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> things. So, yeah, I agree. I think one of one of the other things I want to roll back to that you you mentioned a few times was you kept talking about doing, right? And uh, I'm. I'm not going to get this quote right, uh, uh, but it was something about if um, don't, it's something like if you're not doing the thing, don't interrupt the person trying. 
I know that mm-hmm. it's, it's stated more eloquently than that, but that's kind of how I remember it. And so I really like when you're talking before about, you know, it depends and, you know, there's so much doing and what's that. I know there's, there's no perfect answer to this either, but may, so maybe the way to ask it is what are some of your thoughts around you, know, you, you go into a company, you have this idea of him. Hey, I, I have this idea. I'm start to start up, right. Some family and friends money. Um, and I have this kind of vision for where it could be, but we need to start, we need to back it up to present day and like, how do we start and where do we start? And on this idea of really focusing on doing right and learning. So what, what are your thoughts around this balance of kind of doing versus kind of thinking and researching, um, kind of for med tech startups? Yeah, this is what I think. I I always said like we I felt maybe maybe in life in general, but I think in the startup world, I feel that there's always you're struggling. Always, you know, you have there's uh, you have to think short term, but you also have to think long term. You have to be patient, yet you have to be impatient. It's like there's no such thing in balance, right? And there's somebody who's telling me there's all about priority. You just have to go move between one extreme to the other. Mm-hmm. And I think healthcare is another thing. Sometimes, you know, the process of understanding the market can be really long. Mm-hmm. That if you want to learn it to perfection, the perfection, like you learned as much as you can. And you think it's never enough because you never know enough because it's so complicated. And then if that's the case and you paralyze, then you never start something. And then sometimes when you do something, but then you have not really understand the, the market and you feel like you want to come up with, say, a beautiful engineering prototyping because it feels like you're doing something. You can see the result and that can be rewarding um, because you feel like you're doing and that also can be uh, not so wise and I think oftentimes at least I do is that this is how I know what I need to do and then you feel like and there's something that you're comfortable with then you tend to do it first and then maybe uh, things that you are not comfortable with, which is, you know, checking, talking with people in the marketplace or an investor world because you're like, well, I don't have any product. I'm not going to talk to investors. And so, I mean, it's always, it's again, the heart is the chicken and egg. And I think sometimes it's easy to say like, oh yeah, you know, you should talk to an investor, but then investor is like, well, why do I want to waste my time talking to somebody uh, when you don't have anything yet? But, Human are human, and I think sometimes it helps to have a personality. I believe that if you're likable, somehow you can convince somebody to tell you more. And I think the world is a bit unfair sometimes when I think about it. It's that we all have different personality, and some personality are more rewarded than other personality. Mm. Yeah, in real life, when you think about it, different personality have different roles to play. So 
I don't know. Um, I don't have a good answer because, again, you know, it's straddling, you know. When you have to do it, it's almost like you have to do it all. Like moving a lot. It's almost like you are like an octopus. You cannot just focus on one and then you'd be like catapult to the ether. Uh, but you almost have to move things around so that you kind of have so many things that you need to figure it out and then somehow move elegantly. I mean, I think that's the what you describe is the very nature of a startup, right? You're trying to understand the regulatory land, you know, regardless of the people in the roles at the company. You're trying to understand the regulatory landscape in the U.S. and outside. Like, where are we going to start? You're trying to understand clinicals. What do we really need to punch into the marketplace? And where do we start? Right. And uh, balancing that with the regulatory and then balancing that with uh, what we know about the markets and the customers and the reimbursement. Right. It's uh, you'll appreciate that. Right. It's a bit like baking. (laughs) You get too much of one thing and not enough of the other thing. It's not gonna. It's not gonna taste great at the outset, and probably won't look too appealing either. Uh, and I think that it. I heard someone talk the other day about um, two people actually talk over the last two weeks talk about the idea of it's not about seeking balance. It's about, um, like you said, prioritizing the being unbalanced, recognizing that there is no perfect balance, whether it's in a company or between your personal and your work life. Um, But understanding what your priorities are, as you said, Mm -hmm. knowing that you're focused on the priorities, like, you know, things that are really going to move the needle. Um, And I think that, you know, when you, when you talked about that, that made me think about, I mean, think about what I've heard over the last couple of weeks and also about this idea of, um, you know, writing down where you're spending your time because, I mean, it's very simple and a thousand people talk about this, right? But do it for a week, let's say, and then look at it and say, is this how, you know, how I spend my time indicates, you know, what's going to get done at work, right? Or what the priorities are at work. Does that line up? And if it doesn't line up, (laughs) how can you make it line up? Yeah. Um, so I think it's easy, like you said, like if you're really into prototyping, right? Maybe you're like, oh, I'm going to prototype this. Maybe that wasn't the right next move kind of in, mm-hmm. the, in the chess game of a med tech startup. But it was the fun thing or the easy thing or the, we've all had those days where, oh, I'm going to not do the thing I really need to get done today. And instead, I'm going to do the following short list of busy items. <laughs> Right. So I think like you, it. Yeah, right. So I think that, yeah. that um, you bring up great ideas about doing, prioritizing, understanding that there's no perfection and balance, um, and really listening to feedback. I mean, I think that's critical from the from customers, from pay, whomever the, the customer ecosystem is composed of. And I think. You know, it's always somebody was telling me that keep talking so that people can hear your problem and then that way people can give you feedback and then they can try to help you. And you'd be surprised how much people are willing to help 
if you let them know. But again, you probably have to be nice, <laughs> like person. <laughs> right. I think I think that's a great point that people um, genuine. Most people, you know. Again, let's not assume, like you said. Uh, that most people want to help other people, right, and help problem solve. Um, but it's interesting. It makes me think about transparency a little bit. Sometimes you want to be like, hey, I have my XYZ company, and it's perfect. We do this. We do that. We're perfect. Or, you know, you're pitching, essentially. Um, there is, as you said, a lot of, there's a lot of, really critical feedback, feedback critical to the success of, you know, you, the team, the company. And people will help you problem solve, but you need to be forthright, mm-hmm. right? And transparent about, hey, I'm kind of struggling with this. Hey, I've kind of hit a roadblock with that. <laughs> Can you help give me feedback? And I think that takes, a, in, in my experience, I think that takes a very, Someone who's very grounded and kind of humble about kind of, you know, approaching the world like a beginner. I've the yoga teacher stuff, right? Um, Yeah. Like the beginner's mind, right? The idea of the beginner's mind. I think also when you, I mean, getting, uh, asking for feedback, asking for help, I think, you know, I'm not saying that you just go out to anybody out there. I think you need find somebody that you have built a trusting relationship, then, you know, then you can be more open. And I think, you know, you've seen a lot of companies that they have to show certain how, you know, how they're, they don't have, and everything is perfect, and then they don't want to show it to their potential acquirer, but then at the end, you know, it doesn't mean that they should, hide it but i'm just saying you don't have to go out there uh say like hey you know the sky is falling and then everybody is like well, i'm not going to buy you and but i think uh hopefully you fix that problem before you got your acquired but i think mm-hmm. having somebody who has earned your trust and that way you can always go to that person whenever there's challenges that you face. And I think, like in life, I think company is the same way as, you know, go through life. You want to surround yourself with trusted people who can tell you that you suck sometimes. (laughs) And hopefully you have a partner who can tell you that. That when they say something that you're stuck doesn't mean it's a bad intention. It's because it's a good intention. Right. Yeah, they're trying to help help with the, as you mentioned before, like those blind, we all have blind spots, right? Mm-hmm. So to try to help with, a, with our blind spots and help us identify areas where we can grow, right? Yeah. And we can do better. It's not always, like, not always the easiest thing to do. No, not easy. I think even delivering the message that you suck has to be very thoughtful, right? And so I always tell my son, my son is my uh, guinea pig. (laughs) I told him. I understand. (laughs) It's easy. 
it's uh, whenever I give you a feedback, I have thought it 10 different ways on how to deliver it. And it's still going to sound sucks because the message is sucks that you're not amazing. So just you have to be able to filter that out and try to get rid of your ego and then figure it out. And I think I learned this quote I thought was really amazing is that human, we have ego to protect ourselves when we were young, but it's the same thing. It's like chicken. And somebody said it, I thought it was like so beautifully said is that when you're a chicken in the eggs, the egg is your ego. Mm-hmm. And then at some point you have to break that ego in order for you to become chicken. If you never break your ego, you never become chicken or you never, you know, never break the eggs and you never become mm-hmm. the person that you, you need to be. And I think that is something it comes with age maybe. That definitely helps a little bit, at least in my own experience. <laughs> um, yeah, I think what you're doing uh, with your son and uh, helping him understand the enormous value of feedback and really hearing it, um, I think that's really, that's critical, right, for our families, for people we love, for businesses. Um, Providing critical feedback is how we all grow, right? We all grow and more and get better. Um, so. Yeah, I'm not really good at giving feedback because it's, you know, not everybody like to hear feedback. <laughs> and I don't like conflict. <laughs> right? We all vary is for growth, right? And it's interesting you say I don't like conflict. I've, I've found that... Uh, in, yeah, listening to other people that um, they say like move towards the discomfort or move towards the fear because that's usually a way of life signaling areas of potential growth. Mm-hmm. So I can speak to that from my own experience because that's true. Like if I'm starting to feel super uncomfortable about something, it's usually because I'm learning something and I'm about to break, kind of break the egg on that particular one, uh-huh. <laughs> that particular area. Uh, but it, yeah, it always gets un- more uncomfortable before it, like you, you said at the, you were at the beginning, you were talking about you, you're in the next stage of the company and it feels difficult and challenging and, but you've forgotten that X many months or, you know, a year or so ago that when you're in that stage, it was also difficult, <laughs> uncomfortable and challenging, right? But you're like, now you're, you've, You've overcome that. You've learned that. So now that's that's super easy. Not so hard anymore. <laughs> right. Not so hard anymore. But this new stage, right? Lots of learning uh, is uncomfortable and is hard, um, but valuable, I think, at the end. You know, yeah. You push through. So a lot of great med tech startups out there. I love that I came into this thinking we were going to talk about like funding and best practices and. Uh, and that we real that you know you you were really speaking to this idea of people. I wouldn't say relationships necessarily, but it it revolves in that area, right? Feedback and um, focus and doing, uh, which is super critical. Uh, and that that unbalance, right, of doing versus thinking, or doing versus researching and thinking. 
right? There has to be some doing and there has to be some researching and thinking, uh, but not all of one or all of the other. So, yeah. Um, somewhere middle-ish um, from that standpoint. Yes. That you're doing the right thing, you're not wasting your time, but you're also doing to learn to take it out of theory and into reality, right? And to say, hey, yeah, well, that's what you're saying is just writing it down, right? A thing when you're writing down, they don't lie to you. Your perception and what reality can be checked. Writing is, uh, yeah, I know writing's super powerful. My, um, uh, my brother, is a cognitive psychology professor. It's actually psychophysics. It's like a branch of a branch of a branch. Um, mm -hmm. But he talks psychophysics. about psychophysics. I never heard about that. It's the it's super cool. Like it didn't have a name when he started in this. Um, it's our perception. So that human or dogs or whomever, right? It's how we perceive the movement of objects through space. Mm. So like. How does an outfielder catch a fly ball? Like the theory previously to my brother's was that they're calculating like the parabola in their head to line up in the right place. That's not the way it works. <laughs> like a follow-up study on how dogs catch frisbees and it's similar. But we use visual and perceptual cues, right? Because what we perceive is happening is not what is actually happening. Right. I can tell you when I catch a ball, I don't, I do not think about parabola. I'm just like, oh, it's coming. <laughs> right? Exactly. A thousand percent. A thousand percent. And so he talks about this, you know, where they talk about kind of um, brainwashing and how it used to take place with, um, during wars with writing. And they would have them write because it, helps you believe when you write. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, um, the United States isn't perfect. I'm going to get this completely wrong, but my brother will correct it. But something like you, you have them write, the United States isn't perfect. And then the United States, you know, over and over again. And then the next week, the United States has problems over and over again. And then the next week, right, you kind of take it. And so they're buying it by writing. They start to cognitively write. That is yes. what is true. Mm. And so I think that, um, one, it's a really powerful thing kind of cognitively for us to write things. And I also, um, we know in MedTech in particular that, uh, as, as one of my colleagues used to say, it's not documented, it didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> write it down. And I, and I think another critically important piece that you brought up about writing it down is it, it allows then for alignment of different people, right? You can say, oh, it's not what I said, or maybe if that's what I said, that wasn't what I meant. Can I mm -hmm. take that? And so it allows for this very kind of non-threatening, mm -hmm. amiable way to say, hey, let me correct that. This isn't what I really meant. This is what I meant. Or can you tweak this? Or can you tweak that? Um, and allows people to kind of align and then move to the next step together. So, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it takes time writing, but I think uh, it, it's so valuable. I wish I know how to write when I was younger. This is something that 
I did not. I learned, I learned later in life. Yeah, I think writing, it, writing is interesting uh, in this day and age. <laughs> so um, I think when you think about, you know, I came up with very formal writing and memos and, right, very formal writing. And right. very formal dress, and right, we know it shifted over the shifted a lot, and in great and amazing ways. <laughs> um, and I think that uh, what is what happens nowadays is what I see a lot of from the marketing side, because I'm like look at the world through that lens, is people aren't intaking or as comfortable reading and writing kind of long form text. So much so that if I put more than like two paragraphs in an email, it just yeah. <laughs> to bullet point, bold, italic. Like I have to really think about what message, like if it's, a, if it's something going to multiple people and I really want to be clear, I really need to think about how they're going to intake that message and how to make that really easy for them to think about. Um, because it's all become very uh, short. Right, it's all catchphrases and a couple of short yes. things, and it used to be you'd start with an opening paragraph, and then you'd build, and then you close. Right now, it has to be like the hook up front, or people are just going to scroll right on by you. We all have ADHD, <laughs> right? So I think even that that kind of long, what used to be kind of long form writing, is um, it's being challenged. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then uh, people just like. I just want to know the end. <laughs> Was it happy ending? <laughs> right. And I, yeah, thousand percent. Like, tell me the cool <laughs> stuff. I don't need all that blather in the middle. Like, yeah. You no, know, get me to the end point. Right. I mean, there's a reason why YouTube chops things up into key bits, even if you don't ask them to. So you can jump ahead. Yeah. Like you Google search and it's like, oh, I'm going to take you to a minute, you know, three, 10 seconds in. To answer your question, like you don't need to watch the twenty minute video, right? So. And you can listen to it in two X also. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure people listen to this podcast in you know one and a half to two X because I do that with I do that with videos as well. I'm like, move it along, people. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so, but some are harder, and there's a lot of content. Then you gotta like wait. I, I missed it, so you have to go back. But I think, you know, we are always in a rush. There's a lot of competing things that you want to do. You want to watch TV. You want to do X, Y, Z, and so you want to do everything all at once. And, um, and then we forgot that being present is so important. And sometimes we forgot. I think that is. Uh, yeah, being present, that's a, that's a great insight, right? That when you're doing, when you're talking to someone, right? You're talking to someone, giving feedback or listening, you know, really, really working on being present and in that moment and really hearing it um, or really kind of listening to what they're not saying, you know, non-verbally. Um, mm -hmm to try to deliver it in a way that they can hear, right? 
Mm-hmm. Like the spoonful right. of sugar medicine to go down. <laughs> and some people like it more, you know, like it more direct. I prefer someone yeah. who's just like, hey, this is an issue. <laughs> uh, but I have found going the other direction that most people don't prefer that. <laughs> they don't prefer the directness. Right. I think it's a cultural thing. It's very cultural where, you know, depending on what culture you're from. I mean, so I think that some cultures are more direct than others. And also English is also a language that's pretty direct, I have to say. Mm. Um, It's interesting. How so? I speak multiple languages, and I think uh, English is very. And English is, a, I don't know, compared to other language, but I feel like you know, compared to the languages that I speak, I think English is very precise and specific, so that there's no back and forth. So actually, I notice I grew up in Indonesia when there's so there's no genders, there's no past tense, there's no you know, there's no tenses. And I remember when I interacted with Dean, uh, I would say something. Because like in Indonesian, it's like, I eat yesterday, I eat tomorrow, I eat now. In English, mm-hmm. it's not like, I ate. You don't even have to assume. It already happened, right? So mm-hmm. so if sometimes uh, when I'm tired and I'm sleepy, my tenses become completely out of work. Less so in writing, but when I speak, it's harder. Um, then there's... People can be really impatient. Like, what does he mean? Did you mean like that person just ate yesterday or that person is eating now? So it's really annoy that person because they're in a hurry. They want to understand what you are saying. And then you confuse them because you're not very clear. And, but growing up in Indonesia, that is, the culture is so different. It's like, oh, Maureen eat. I was like, oh, and then the other, you would say, oh, when did Maury, you know, when Maury eat? Was oh, it yesterday or was it tomorrow or is it today? And then it's like, oh, it was yesterday. So there's a lot of people willing to spend more time of back and forth. Mm-hmm. And um, even now I notice when I speak to my family or my friends in Indonesia, I lost patience because mm-hmm. I'm, I have changed. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think... In Indonesia, we value the back and forth. That's when you build that relationship. Here is inefficient. So I think oftentimes a lot of it is, you know, cultural. Um, language is such a cultural thing. And I think when I think about presenting and you know, doing pitching, and I always felt that, you know, we are in the United States. We are, uh, I'm not saying that if you're an immigrant, you cannot be successful. There's a lot of successful immigrants, but I think you need to be really good in communicating your ideas in a succinct way, in, in a meaningful way, and it get people attention quickly because people are short on time. That is right. It's not this kind of uh, expected, like you're talking about kind of dial, right? The dialogue is expected. Right. You're going to go back and forth to share the conversation and understand each other. And, um, yeah, that idea of being succinct and meaningful um, and kind of getting to the point is limited time when pitching. 
Yeah, and because this year I'm busier because um, technology allows us to take on more. Mm-hmm. I mean, before you send a letter to apply for a job, you wait for two weeks for somebody to show up. And now, like, two weeks? <laughs> What's going on? Did I not get it? Did that person did not like my interview? There's this expectation of immediacy. I've taken to, um, I've realized the more emails I send, the more replies I get, right? Shocking. And so what else? That I'll is a good thing. You're wondering that you send them. Sometimes it doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, oh, fair point. Good point. <laughs> yeah, if you're like job hunting, for example. Uh, so uh, what I've started doing on, if I'm playing catch up on the weekend due to certain activities or business during the week, uh, I make a point to schedule them, not send them right away, but I make mm-hmm. a point to schedule them for Monday morning mm-hmm. because I, one, don't want people to expect me to be working on the weekend. I also don't want them to think that they have to respond to me on the weekend. I mean, unless we're in some kind of emergency situation and then we're all in it together and we, we know and understand this. But on as a regular flow of things. And then, yeah, then when it goes out on Monday, I mean, that's not very efficient. But I want to be able to respond to them when I'm, you know, in full-on work mode. Yeah, and I can't catch up. I've tried doing it the other way. I can't catch up because people start responding right away, and then I need to re- right. The cycle starts. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not catching up on the weekend. I'm creating more work for myself. <laughs> That's not efficient <laughs> for me, at least. So it's hard to be uh, completely efficient. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, we're hu- like you said before, we're imperfectly human. So, yeah. We're, we're not meant to be machinery. Gary, <laughs> 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 even those aren't, right? Those aren't perfectly efficient either, right? There's always friction of some way, shape, or form involved. Yeah. So, which is to be expected. Um, so, I'll, I'll close with just a couple kind of fun questions and I think this is, this is an easy one for you um, okay if uh, if you could travel anywhere in the world uh, right now where would you go and why wow that is a hard question because what I want is a lot more than the time that mm-hmm. and the resources that I have and I have so many different reasons I'd like to go to Japan because I always enjoy Japan. It's really fun. Uh, food is great. Travel is easy. Um, but at the same time, uh, if I keep going back to the places that I like, then I never got to explore new places. And so one of the things that I, the second one, if I can sneak in another one, I'd like to go uh, travel in Indonesia a little bit. It's always, you know, the idea always sounds good when I want to go to Indonesia. It's like, oh, because you have all your memory and you're nostalgic about, you know, places. But of course, you know, when you left a place many, many years ago, what you remember, what has changed sometimes doesn't 
always line up <laughs> and always look great when you're on YouTube channel because you know you don't feel the heat, you don't feel like the mosquitoes. All look so perfect from your perfect temperature in your house. So those are the two places that I would go first: Japan and Indonesia. All right. Yeah. You mentioned food, so my second question will be: um, if if someone's feeling adventurous and it's their first time in Japan, Tokyo, or um, and such, what should they try that they wouldn't ordinarily try, and why? In Japan? Yeah. Cause I feel like Japanese food has gone global. Uh, almost like you can find a lot of Japanese food or Indonesian food. And, um, in Indonesia. I never liked it, and I still don't like it. But I was appalled to see the cause of sea cucumber. And um, growing up, we had my mom would make us sea cucumber that I hated. Well, I didn't hate it. I I tolerated. Uh, and you know, it's not considered cheap either. It's like delicacy. And when I went to Japan. Two years ago, I was so shocked the price that people pay for sea cucumber. So, just for the sake of trying, you should try sea cucumber. <laughs> <laughs> see if I see if people dislike it as much as you do, or if they like. I think it has no taste. It's just the texture, and I think a lot of the I think Asian food. Uh, we appreciate salt, sour, and sweet and spicy, but also texture. And I think Western food are less so about appreciating texture. It's mm. a great point. It's that fifth element of the taste. Ah, there you go. I like it. I like it. I like it. So any thoughts or you want to share a little bit about the Rosamond Institute before we close up for today? Yeah, let's see. I, I think, you know, it's uh, the Rosamond Institute has taken me through a journey that I never expected. Mm -hmm. And uh, it has given a lot of joy. And also at the same time, I hope it creates a uh, impact for uh, entrepreneurs who are interested in bringing their technology into commercialization in some small way. And one thing that uh, we are doing and we've been doing is that we really are very passionate in helping the entrepreneurs to get to their next stage. And um, I always tell people oftentimes there's so much, I mean, one thing that we can tell you that we try our best. And I think also we cannot do it without them. And so it's, it's almost like, you know, you, we need to, I always tell people is that you, you get what you put in. So I think that's, uh, you know, one thing that we don't do, we don't provide funding. So what we do is provide community. We try to provide a sense of a connection, the connection in a, a, a 
a fun and safe, safe space to meet people and passionate people who want to bring the technology out there. Very cool. That's awesome. That's awesome. So thank you so much for joining us today. I really, really appreciate it. It's been great catching up and talking about all sorts of things today with you that entrepreneurs need to think about. So uh, I really appreciate your time. And uh, thanks so much for joining us today on The Message Engineer. Uh, like, subscribe, hit the bell. I don't know which platform you're on if you like what you heard today. So thanks so much. Bye for now.